I do feel like there, there are just only so many people I can worry about, right? And as much as I would like to say that my common humanity is going to motivate me to do things for all sorts of, of people, I, there's just a, a sort of evolutionary built-in feature to me that I'm going to worry more about my local neighbors. And and if I if I have that mentality, then the stories that I tell do need to be to be local in order to spur wider and wider and wider senses of action. So there's part of me that resists this idea that there's a single narrative that we could tell, right? We're going to need lots and lots and lots of narratives. You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte. And my favorite thing to do at the beach is to collect seashells with my kids. Rachel Jackson, Rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation in Hendersonville, North Carolina. My favorite beach activity is laying on a large blanket so that there's little sand on there with a book. Oh man, that's what I was going to say. Dang it. <laughs> Bunch of nerds. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my name is Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University, and my favorite beach activity is also laying on a large blanket with a book, and that book is usually Lord of the Rings. My name is Adam Pryor. Uh, I teach at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. My favorite beach activity is body surfing. I'm Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and I was also going to say reading some fictiony, science fictiony book, but everyone else is also a nerd, so I'm going to say <laughs> I love just running headlong into the cold ocean with and just letting the first wave that comes just smash me in the face and get sea water all up ons and all of that good stuff. That sounds horrible. <laughs> it's, the <best. laughs> it's the best. I grew up at the shore. I love it. <laughs> okay. So why did um, you ask us this question? Uh, I love that. Thank you, Rachel, for getting us back on task. Um, I try. I asked this because in our state, mine and Rachel's state, North Carolina, you know, the beach is such a huge commodity for our state and draws in so many people and so much money. And sea level rise is something that's been discussed quite a bit over the last 10 years or so in very interesting ways. But I wanted, so I wanted to focus on that to talk about not really get into the, you know, what it is, but just looking at the impacts of it, what we could do. And I know in our show notes, we'll have some, some of those really cool websites, but I also wanted to start with an interesting story that uh, back in, I think it was spring of 1997, that second semester of college for me, I was in my intro to environmental science class and the professor one day, Dr. Brooke told us we were talking about the beach and things like that. And he just kind of said, oh, by the way, if you want beachfront property someday, go ahead and buy in New Bern, North Carolina now. And this was back in 1997. And New Bern is not right on the beach and around the coast. And we kind of asked him why. And he said, well, because eventually that part of North Carolina will be gone because of sea level rise. And that's where the beach will be. And we all thought he was joking. But then you start hearing... I'm not saying that's happening now, but reading about the you know what's happened with all the hurricanes that have been coming through in our state, which we always get anyway, but 
the level of flooding going on and how it's gotten worse over the past several years. And then it makes you really start to wonder about what could happen in the future if things aren't changed. So that's kind of why I thought about this, about what is your favorite thing you like to do on the beach? Because some people will, may argue that the beaches in North Carolina that we know of right now may not be there in 50 years. And so, yeah. Someone want to say something? I was just going to say, not according to the North Carolina legislature. Right. And that, thank you, Rachel. That So that's, that's where we get into this really interesting quick story. And I can just give a very brief overview of what happened. Let me pull it up. But back in... 2010, a report was released by a scientist I actually know. Uh, he was on a commission on, a, on an advisory panel about what may happen with projections for sea level rise. And within that, uh, one of the rec or predictions that they have is if things keep going the way it's going, that the sea level could potentially rise up to 39 inches by the year 2100 because of climate change. Uh, that report was in 2010. And then with the election in 2010 in our state, the state legislature, the representatives and the, the uh, what both chambers, House and the Senate and the state changed from Democrat to Republican controlled supermajority, I believe. And they started questioning a lot of those types of conclusions. And what happened was, is a very powerful uh, group called NC20, which is, represents or a, like an economic policy group that speaks for the 20 counties on the coast of North Carolina fought it and said, you know, if you uh, do any regulations on this or anything like that, this will greatly impact development along the coast because of the concerns when it came to like, for example, insurance and just property values. So they decided, uh, this, the legislature decided that, well, we're not going to allow that to happen. And so they initially, they filed a bill in 2012 and initially it was said that the only thing that they could base future projections on when it comes to sea level rise is historical data, which the last hundred years, I think that the sea level has risen like eight, eight inches. And so that's all they could project. So that was the initial bill and it got ridiculed by pretty much everyone, including Stephen Colbert, who was, who was at the time at the Colbert report. And I, we need to even find the clip. I only find like readouts of it, but I found it. Um, I found it. In the the actual clip. Okay, yeah. good. But uh, the clip is absolutely hilarious. I remember watching it and pretty much he ends it with saying that if the science gives you a result you don't like, pass the law saying the result is illegal, problem solved. Um, and so after all of this ridicule, they changed it and said that, forgot all the changes, but one of the big things was is that the report that you need to release by 2015 can only project what could happen in the next 30 years instead of, so 2100. Yep. Um, so it, it kind of made people like NC20 and, you know, economists and developers very happy and scientists who used to be very much trusted, very angry. And so since that time, we've had some, uh, several severe storms along the coast, um, they've done significant damage. I can't remember when this happened, but, you know, pretty much every major storm that comes through destroys the bridge from the Nags Head area, that part of the state, northeastern part of the state, to Cape Hatteras. It's Highway 12. It always gets washed out. And so they're rebuilding Highway 12 again um, with a new bridge, a bigger bridge, higher up. And so it's it's been interesting. And I just, in doing research for this, situa for, for this episode, I learned that now, because they have to do a new report, they have to do one every five years, 
And now there's the uh, speculation or, or talk that they don't need to stay to just that 30 year projection. Now they can go up to 2100 or they can include that as part of it. They still have to do the 30 years, but then they can add to that. And so to me, it was just amazing because then when you read about all of the things that we've learned since that time frame of 2012 and the ramifications, the sea level rise and um, what could happen, you see that the communities that will be most impacted are the communities of people who are low income. You know, even though these other communities will be impacted that are high income communities, there are things being put in place to protect those communities because the resources are available. But these low income communities are going to be felt are going to hit it hard and it's going to get them really hard. And many may have to be moved. And it seems like there's just a, but I can't develop. So why should I care mentality? If that makes sense. So I know I'm just rambling, but it's, it's something that is near and dear to me as a, someone from North Carolina. And I do enjoy going to the beaches, but seeing the, what could happen, seeing, you know, the projections that are being put forth by some of these websites. And then yesterday learning about the things that like the city of Boston. So maybe think about you, Kendra, a city of Boston is doing as a way to, to be prepared for sea level rise. But then also to rereading that this morning, seeing how the less affluent neighborhoods are the ones that may have to just be relocated. But when you see the projections and what could happen, the scenarios that could happen, it, I mean, it's frightening. What could happen to some of these places when you see the d- complete destruction of the coast of our state, Rachel? Well, I am in the mountains, so. Yeah, see, you're oh, so you're I'm in Charlotte. Yeah, Charlotte's good. <laughs> but I think, <laughs> but I, I joke about that because mm-hmm. I think that's the mentality. I think that's the problem with the mentality that, well, I'm in the mountains. Not only am I elevation higher, and so it's not, it's not an issue. I am far, far away for those that don't understand the the geography of North Carolina, Hendersonville is about six hours by car from the ocean. Um, mm. We are not close at all. So it's the mentality of, well, I'm not there. I don't feel these effects. I don't know anybody that has the effects. And well, there'll still be a beach, right? It's just it's not that the beach is going to go place. away. It'll right. just be a different, it'll, it'll be closer, Right. Hey, that yeah. would benefit me more because the beach will be closer. <laughs> yeah. Right. But but this this removedness, I think that's a made up word. Um, I like it. From from the other, from someone that's not me. And you're pointing out North Carolina, and you you broached it with right. There's a lot of this is a lot of development area, and this is um, a tourist area. But even that, I think, is that we're still only looking at. Even in America, people can honestly go inland. Not to say that that the idea that half of Florida or all of Florida maybe get underwater or all of Long Beach, California, depending, that there are in... But if that does happen, they just move a little bit to the center of the country. But what about countries that are only on the water, right? right? The entire Philippines, right, are only in the water. Right. And and so Islands. I think, yeah, I mean, and, and the list yeah. goes on and on. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think, and those just feel, well, that's really far away from here. Mm-hmm. So I, I wonder how we bridge that gap of, of othering. Well, so we're only looking at the, my problem. you know, so far we've only really talked about the cost to humans. Right. You know, when you look mm-hmm. at the cost to ecosystems and to other species in general, 
species could be completely wiped out because of this kind of stuff. And it kind of gets back to many things we've talked about throughout this, this series and in other episodes too, about the importance of, especially I think it was in the human origins up series when I really started talking a lot about feeling the connectedness to other species and the importance of recognizing our role in, in some cases, the survival or extinction of those species and how we could potentially do something to stop the, that extinction. Yeah. Do y'all know what the uh, most commonly extracted resource in the world is? Is it sand? It is sand. <laughs> is it really? It is. 2.6 gigatons a year um, wow. as of 2010. Yeah, which there's no regulation on sand mining, but it's it's really kind of a hidden problem. Um, most of the sand that gets mined, which, you know, they just take it off of beaches, goes towards making concrete and glass. So it goes mm -hmm. towards basically creating cities. And so, for example, in Sri Lanka, there the, the communities where there was the most sand mining were the ones hardest hit by the tsunami. And ironically, then they had to import sand in order to rebuild their beaches. And so every time that some oh. coast gets hit with some once in 500 year hurricane or tsunami or whatnot, they have to rebuild that beach and they have to rebuild it by bringing sand in and they get sand off of other beaches. And so we're kind of moving it around. And every time there's a major storm, it sends it back into the ocean. And then we're also taking it and making cities out of it. And all of our cities are made on water, right next to rivers or lakes or oceans. Mm -hmm. And we talk a lot about resource depletion in terms of fossil fuels and forests and whatnot, but nobody's really talking about sand. It's it. This is not a sustainable system. We're 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 just hanging on for for what we have, and so Ken, I don't Kendra, I don't know any answer to that. By the way, I know. <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> just. We all need to get a hammer and a bunch of rocks and seashells, and we all need to do our part by breaking it up and throwing it in the ocean. Well, throwing it next to the ocean, rather. Yeah. Well, and see if there's a way, too, that we can figure out a, you know how to replicate the rock cycle. Mm. There you, you know, go. So the, get some of those igneous rocks and put them you know, under the right conditions to make sedimentary rocks and then more sand. And if everyone raises parrotfish and we feed them all of the dying coral, then we can make more sand. And there you go. 85% of Hawaii's beaches, by the way, are just parrotfish poop. So just Ooh. the more you know. <laughs> yeah. Kendra, so I was going to ask when I don't know a whole lot about Boston. When I saw the article that we'll put in the show notes about what Boston is doing to be ready for sea level rise, at least in, in my part of the country, whenever you hear about flooding and sea levels and, and you know, special, you know, major flooding issues like that, I mean, you do hear a little bit about Boston, but it's primarily the rest of the eastern seaboard when you talk about the Carolinas and Florida, and, you know. That really comes up a lot. I was really surprised in that article to see that Boston is like one of the most flood prone cities in the world or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Which, up there. I think 
I could be wrong, but I think I saw something that placed it like within the top 10. Yeah, which um, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it just made me really think when I was reading that, have you noticed some of the construction projects and efforts they're trying to do to deal with like the flooding issues? I, I've like, I, I see and hear people talking about that. And I know that Marty Walsh, our mayor of Boston cares about that and has like a plan and like projected plans for how to deal with that in the future of Boston. But yeah, I, and I, like I said, I had a a chance to briefly look over one of the links you shared that actually in that article, there was a link to like a PDF document of the city, some of the city's projected plans for climate change. And I, as Rachel was talking earlier, I was just thinking about how we've already discussed a few times over the course of this podcast, how statistics and and just like numerical information about anything is not always the most compelling way to call people to action, but that stories, emotional stories, or just like narratives are more compelling to people. And I was interested in looking over some of the the graphs just, and I, I'm sure other cities have this too, but Boston's PDF of like projected plans and stats, like there's a lot of statistics and numbers, but there's also like pictures of uh, the the shore or like the, the harbor and how, and like explanations about how when water is warmer, it expands and the high tide it like changes the shoreline versus when it's colder and the water is smaller, like things that explain the particularities of what's actually happening in nature rather than just saying we've had a uh, like 40% increase in carbon dioxide over the last like however many years, like that's really important information. But I, <laughs> I think what's often missing and what I think we're slowly getting right. better at is telling Emotional. stories. And I I feel like it's really easy to take that for granted. And I I remember a few years ago, I um, had to take a class called Science Literacy, which was one of the hardest classes I've ever taken. Uh, (laughs) And it was like all oral exams. And we, my advisor is just like crazy smart person. And my program is a humanities program. Like I'm in a religion department, but my program is religion and science. So all the students are required to have science literacy. And some of the things that you learn in this class are things about like theories of gravity and things that require you to have some working knowledge of calculus, which is something I never took in high school or college. And just like uh, all of these like mathematical principles that are, you know, you could get a whole PhD in those things. But in this class, my advisor would always talk to us and tell us, what I'm going to be teaching you in this class, I'm not asking you to become mathematicians. I'm asking you to be able to understand concepts and to be able to tell stories about those concepts. Mm, yeah. And that phrasing and style of teaching these like scientific principles that could easily just be written as like an algorithm on a chalkboard, but would not mean anything to a lot of people. Instead, we would like tell the story. And I think that's <laughs> something that, we have to do when we talk about climate change instead of like giving the percentages about carbon dioxide, which I think still should be something we share. We should also like tell the story about 
how like polar ice caps, in case you didn't know, are they have bright surfaces and they actually over time have helped to reflect sunlight back into the atmosphere. And when those polar ice caps shrink, there's less of a bright surface that can reflect that light and heat. And so instead it is absorbed into the dark ocean waters. And like that information in that more like narrative style form, it just makes a lot of sense. It's like easier to make sense of that, I think, for a lot of people than to give the statistical information that's also important for like creating policies and whatnot. But in terms of public communication, I guess, I, I've noticed that these things seem to be that, like I find them very compelling. And I, I think that it's good to see that in like PDF documents of policies that cities are creating and sharing with the public. You have these graphs and pictures that show real people standing in like a foot of water on a sidewalk that's close to a harbor. And that like I can connect with that emotionally in a, a, a deeper way than with the numbers about you know, CO2 or whatever. So that's right. sort of, yeah, that's so, what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. And if I, if I could add to that, the first time that I really uh, emotionally emotionalized, I'm just making up words left and right today. Um, because <laughs> we've okay. got, I intellectualized something. Um, <laughs> right, I intellectualized and understood CO2 and sea level rise and all that stuff for you know, decade, two decades, at least at this point. But I didn't, I didn't feel it. And I, I, I clearly, distinctly remember the time I felt it. And it was, I was listening to some news program on NPR. And it was talking about an Alaska Native tribe. Um, and again, this, the full article and story will be in the show notes. But I wanted to read a paragraph that that talks about this in that emotional way. And and my apologies if I if I mispronounce some of these words. It says Shishmaref, which is the name of the the town, will be underwater within the next three decades. And if we do not do anything, we'll be forced to move to another city like Nome or Fairbanks or Anchorage. And not many people will move to the same place. So that means our unique community of Shishmaref will soon die out because we have our own unique dialect of Inuput Eskimo language, our own unique Eskimo dancing, our unique gospel singing translated, and all that will soon die out if we do not move as a community. And they voted, and it was something like 90 to 70 vote, and they voted to move. Um, and so they're moving the entire community mm. village several miles to the west. They're they're near the Bering Strait. So for me, like when I, I heard that, I was like, it it had the emotional appeal. Mm. So I, I one like I'm so happy to hear other people know about Shishmaref. Um <laughs> Right. No, seriously, because um, so there's yeah. one church on the island, right? Which is a yeah. which is an ELCA hmm. church. Because there were they were. <laughs> Yep. basically missionized let's keep inventing words i like that um <laughs> this is a good word i think right. these are all words yeah <laughs> uh, no they no, are no, now no they are now we've made them uh no they yeah. like so like they the they were lutheran missionaries right that, that were there right so in fact right they actually voted to move twice and the first time after they voted to move for various reasons they, they were not actually relocated and to to good cause right because the soil study that was done on the land that they were going to be moved to right. was was actually incomplete, and they would have had to have been moved again. Hmm. Um, 
right? And there's a there's a there's a sort of terrible terrible history here, but I but I think it's a really interesting piece, right? Because we tell these stories about and in a certain sense I I I both love the story of Shishmaref and also am, am deeply troubled by it, right? Because it sort of exoticizes the notion of a climate refugee. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, almost without fail, when I've seen reporting about Shishmaref, it involves this story about like US climate refugees as the sort of language that gets used. But it's still choosing, right, to make the US climate refugee someone who is not the sort of normative everyday person, right? It still keeps it far away. And that is something that I I get sort of deeply deeply concerned about but but i was also thinking kendra because in line with these sorts of elements right like stories i think matter right and i think we've talked about that a lot but what came to mind for me when i was reading like the stuff that you sort of like gave to us in and i was hearing you talk kendra right i i thought about um amitav ghosh who wrote a book called the great derangement and the it's i think it's a really brilliant book so i'll just sort of put my bias out there right but one of the things like the, the the focus of the book is this idea that like stories are great and they're really really important and they're also when we talk about climate change the way we usually tell stories isn't well suited to communicating those feelings because so much of the way that we tell stories in literature and in history and politics are based on these individual actions the great novel is based on the moral hero, mm. right? And the things that we end up hearing about, right? Hundred-year storms, you know, five hundred-year weather events, are things that are too outlandish for novelists to write about. They don't have a place in those sort of great epic pieces of literature because they weren't everyday enough. And I think he does a great job of sort of picking out why it is that it's really hard for us to even imagine or think about or use our stories in effective ways to try and create these these feelings that I think all of us have talked about wanting folks to have around climate change. I don't I'm not sure he actually comes up with answers. I mean, he does. I'm not sure they'll all work, but like but I think he names this problem in a way that's really profound. That Shishmaref for me is is really sort of an exemplar of. Does Shishmaref become the problem of these hundred to two hundred individuals, really more like four hundred individuals, who are in a place in a remote section of Alaska that is a Kansan? I could care less about because you know who's not going to be affected by sea level rise? This guy. Yeah. <laughs> Kansas. I mean, we're going to run out of water. Don't worry. There's no place like home. <laughs> we, got, we got our own sets of problems. But, right, sea level rise, that one's not on me. I'm not thinking about that one, right? So you got 99 problems sea level and rise sea level rise is not one, one of them. them. <laughs> you guys can walk around in your boots and your foot deep water at the harbor and I'm going to go like, hey, Kansas. <laughs> Kansas was underwater at some point, right? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. right. I mean, historically, yeah. But <laughs> That's that's the Flint Hills, I mean, but 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 I I, I do th- but I think really seriously about like that that process of telling stories is something that we have to teach people how to do, right? Like the science literacy class that you're talking about, Kendra, right? Like can can we train people to do that fast enough? 
Um, or I or hope how do so. we like? <laughs> <laughs> Kendra's like, I'd like a job. Please hire me. No, um, right? <laughs> Kendra's so all you university administrators out there listening, hire this person. Uh, no, it's like what I wonder about. Like, is is do people feel like they can tell that story? The, those can can tell those stories about about climate change, about their their effects with climate change, and and feel like they can do it in a way that people can hear them. I think that's a great question and a great point that you're raising mm-hmm. about the distance between us and the stories we tell or read. And yeah, I mean, there's a part of me that feels hopeful that like there's a way to make that happen. But like, it's one thing to hear a story and feel personally compelled by it. It's another to uh, feel compelled to tell that story to other people. Um, and I think those that's, are two really like different experiences. And yeah. I think maybe like that's the way that I hear, Adam, when you're talking about the the narratives about the grand heroes or like the grand epics of something that's like major and transformative. That seems like the kind of story that I can hear and be personally transformed by. But if it doesn't feel super connected to, say, the people I know in like Abilene, Texas, then like what what push do I have to get those people to share the story that I felt moved by? And I I right. I think that this relates to the fact that it's just there are some people who will never know what it's like to like see the sea level rise. Like you can tell stories about that, but even I, like knowing uh, facts about sea level rise and hearing people talk about it and knowing like I myself like live close to uh, the shore, but it's just like only in the last couple of years have I actually seen pictures, like actual pictures of what that looks like in communities or like times of day where like the sea level is actually different and that's kind of shocking to me that i like that's such a recent experience that i've seen like a different kind of evidence rather than the charts and stories and whatever to see a picture of it it feels real in a different kind of way and i'm the kind of person who like even without the pictures i just because of like where I am situated in a university, I'm a PhD student. I like looking at graphs and numbers and trying to like work out what that means. It's it's like less work and I'm more enthusiastic to like create my own story from the numbers. But for some people, I think it's less so. Like they need to see how this is in, this is like happening in real life. And so I think like what you're saying, Adam, makes a lot of sense to me because it, I, I think you're right, but yeah, I, I guess like one way to to make it more real for people is if you're talking to people in Kansas, maybe don't talk so much about sea level rise, but talk about the problems that Kansans will have <laughs> and tell stories that are real to like people from Kansas about whatever, like the joke you made about running out of water, you know, like pick something that uh, yeah, is that's, that's like, not a joke. It's just literally <laughs> going to happen. But yeah. yes. <laughs> Sorry for laughing. I know <laughs> these are serious well, things. It's um, fair. But like, I think that that's something that you create a story around. And when people hear stories that relate to the experiences that they have, it makes it easier to empathize with the stories about sea level rise. But 
I think it's a matter of working from the local level outward to the more global, like, epic narrative, if that's what we want to call it. Arkansans not moved by uh, stories and pictures of Puerto Rico that still hasn't recovered or, you know, Haitians that are still re- recovering from the earthquake 10 years ago. I don't think I should that, speak for I mean... all Cantons or about anyone else's empathy. <laughs> well, That's probably not going to go well. I don't, I don't think it will be effective just on the ground to have to formulate a, a different story that is compelling to every people group in every place. Uh, Just practically speaking, plus I'm not sure that we have to. We have to be able to appeal to our common humanities that, you know, seeing the the destruction from Hurricane Sandy broke my heart because that's the beach I grew up going to um, as a kid. And so I have a personal connection to that, but, Mm. you know, if, if you were to learn about some of the families that are still underwater to um, not meaning that as a pun that has to that has to affect you in some way and you know, we still haven't rebuilt the beaches from that and so every time there's another superstorm we're even more screwed than before and right i mean you know i, mean, I do think like one of my questions would be like does it affect people i'm not i, I mean i think that's a legitimate question to ask because mm-hmm. i on the one hand i want to say like yes and yet if it affects but doesn't mobilize action, does that still count? It's a great well, question. Yeah, you know, we keep talking about how we need to have a better story, but I haven't heard one yet. What you mean? You, you weren't like totally moved by my crushing starfish story? No, <laughs> I assumed that that just transformed everyone. Well, how do we tell the narrative then? How do we tell the story if, <laughs> if these aren't working and? Nobody is compelled to actually do anything. And we know that sea level rise is a problem because major cities on the sea are make are spending tens of millions of dollars to do something about billions. it. And billions. Billions of dollars. And they they don't like, you know, spending money on parks. So if they're doing this, then they really think that this is a problem and oh. a potential problem in some cases already happening. The Solomon Islands are going away. You know, like what's our story? What is our story? How do we tell this in a way that's compelling? And maybe we can't even compel people to action because there's not an action that somebody like me who lives in the mountains of Pennsylvania can do about sea level rise. I'm a pastor, so I'm a storyteller <laughs> by, to get by job. That's what I do is I tell stories that then teach a moral lesson. And I'm supposed to give people three application points that all start with the same letter at the end of the day. They can go out and do something productive with the world every week. So I'm. And I myself struggle with this. I don't know. I don't know what the compelling story is that can compel the most people to convince them that this is a problem. I I mentioned earlier the sand problem, that we are mining so much sand to build our cities and to rebuild our beaches. Now, we're only rebuilding tourist beaches, mostly in the United States. So the ones that are making all the money that can then afford, you know, how much sand we had to ship into New Jersey after, after Sandy was ridiculous. And where does that sand come from? 
It comes from other beaches where the people who live there are poor and they don't and they'll sell whatever they can to eat that day. And so we are exploiting people whose stories we're not telling because it would undermine our way of life. And it's also hard to tell their stories because they're so far away. But we are destroying innocent people in order to rebuild our commercial centers instead of moving them to delay the inevitable so that we can all have fun for 15 minutes before the world ends. Well, yeah. <laughs> I... I, I mean, I'm that wasn't so my glad. that wasn't my three points of application right there with my good news <laughs> gospel ending. I'm sorry. <laughs> Praise Jesus. I, I, I just have to say, I, I, I want to pause for a minute and point out that Zach asked the question that made everybody silent and then had to try and answer it himself in an unsatisfactory way. And it was really gratifying to me to not be that person. <laughs> <laughs> so... So Zach, take so take for the day, this. Zach, that you have strangely warmed my heart. Zach it's such an uh, Adam thing to say. Has pulled an Adam. <laughs> and so for the people stuck. at home, uh, Rachel had to leave us early today, so there is no uplifting midrashic story at the. Uh, nope, here, it's all down here, here from here, people. <laughs> lift us up where we belong. <laughs> yeah, so. I think so, that I would say though. It's up to you, Kendra. Save us. <laughs> like unicorns. <laughs> um, I think the question that you asked about, like, what is the story we tell that's actually going to work? I'm not. I'm not sure exactly, like, what you imagine whenever. Like, I I have a, an image that comes to mind when I think about like telling a story to someone and how they respond to that story and what they do. And I I think what I imagine is not actually like what I want to happen, if that makes sense, when we're talking about these stories of climate change. So to explain, in my head, I imagine, uh, you know, like storytelling in general is this like theatrical performance. If you're like sitting with a group of friends and you're trying to like, add flair and emotion and you want everyone to ooh and ah and gasp. And I think it's, you get this uh, image in your head of uh, people like being so filled with emotion that they like have to go do something right now. And I think that is like the idealized version of storytelling and the relationship between the storyteller and the hearer. But I think actually what I want from like this conversation we're having about telling stories about climate change that call people to action. I don't imagine people as being like overflowing with emotion at hearing stories about polar ice caps or, you know, com poor communities who are going to suffer right. from sea, sea level rise. I think about people hearing those stories and maybe initially being emotionally impacted in some way, but that can that cannot last forever. What I want is for those stories to have to, to be repeated over and over again so that they sink in and just become a part of the background of what someone takes to be true about the world and that that will impact behavior in the form of the way we vote for politicians. Like th things that aren't necessarily about like waking up in the morning and just thinking like, man, I really got to stop climate change today. But 
when election day rolls around, maybe you'll like be more inclined to vote for a politician who has a really good climate change policy. And I think that is happening. I mean, not as quickly as we need it to be, but I think even just like looking at the information um, about uh, like evangelical clergy members who are more inclined to put out calls to action for climate change now than they were like 20 years ago. It's like a slow tick, but it is, I think, different now than it was. And certainly, certainly it's like still very slow. We're really in deep, deep trouble. But yeah, like this is the change that I think about. It's not the like drama, the like emotional affect of the story. It's like, okay, what decision can you make when the opportunity arises to like vote for people in power? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, totally. I, I mean, I am still in the back of my mind thinking about how I could change my alarm to say stop climate change every morning. But um, <laughs> but if you but figure that out, will you 100%. share that with all of us? Oh, yeah, for sure. No, I, I, there's got to be a way to do that. No, but I, I so I agree, right? Like, I, I feel like the the bad rap storytelling gets is that that hyper emotional like one time you tell the story suddenly you march forward and we all live like Greta Thunberg right like mm-hmm. that is like I, I mean I feel like and and there's almost something anticlimactic and somewhat disheartening when we realize we're not going to do that mm-hmm. and like suddenly maybe storytelling has the opposite effect from what we want right like ugh, it becomes so overwhelming that I just don't do anything at all which I feel like we've talked about a lot as well so I was I, I'm trying to like take your question really seriously zach and see like what's the like what do i imagine as a story and i i kind of want to i kind of want to say two things so one is i think i'm just fundamentally not optimistic enough to hope that our common humanity actually exists such that we would act on it and I, i i do think that's like a rub in terms of like i think it's like a real disagreement and like a productive disagreement about like how to get going on these sorts of things. Why do you feel that way? Because I think we're terrible people. This is one of the theories of why we've, we <laughs> haven't made direct contact with extraterrestrials. Is that intelligent? <laughs> yeah, no, it totally is. Yeah, no, intelligent <laughs> life will reach a point where it has developed enough technology to destroy itself, and inevitably they do. And so there's like a great filter out there in our development that every civilization blows himself up, unless they don't, and then they're you know, some super creatures and they're watching us like, oh, not going to interact with the with like a, a civilization that hasn't that that has the power to destroy themselves, but hasn't done it yet. Have you no, watched I, The Expanse? Yeah. Ah. Not yet. Oh, it's so good. So good. So good. Is that on we Netflix? Could, we could do an uh, episode on The Expanse. That would be kind of fun. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's on Amazon, but you should watch it. Okay, love it. that's right. I'm going to add it to my list. Carry on. Um. So... <laughs> No, it, it, so I mean, on the one hand, yeah, it's like tongue in cheek. Like I, I, I do think we're just terrible people. But in, President in company excluded, right? Like, no, no we're all terrible, terrible too. Oh, um, terrible. Speak I mean, for yourself. <laughs> I, You're a Lutheran talking a lot like a Calvinist, you know. 
Ooh, hey man, we've we've got Shots a fired. Look, look, Lutherans also have a deep, deep sense of shame and guilt that that we need to acknowledge. I mean, my my favorite professor, the, the person who taught me Lutheran confessions, invited us over to his house. His name was Carl Fried Froelich. He's brilliant and wonderful, and he he invited the entire Lutheran confessions class over to his house. It was Christmas time, and he had this whole big nativity scene, and it was like the whole village of Bethlehem had been built in his like study, and we were like looking at it, and I noticed next to the manger scene, right? There was this watering hole. And I asked him like, that's pretty intense, right? You've got like water there for like, you know, animals to go drink out of. Like, this is an intense nativity scene. He goes, no, you always have to have water in the nativity scene. I said, what? And he goes, that is to remind us of both our baptism and the cesspool of sin into which we're all born. So what? let it not be said that Lutherans don't have. I'm updating a my nativity scene next year. Just how terrible we can. My be. nativity scene does not have a cesspool. Wow! Yeah. Now it's gonna have. That's to. amazing. I, mine, Clearly, we all need a cesspool of sin in our nativity scene. Mine, I think, it portrays more hope and love, but whatever. Episcopalians. Uh, yeah, no. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so, no. So I, when when I think about this, right? Like part of what I'm part of what I wonder about is like I. I I do feel like there there are just only so many people I can worry about, right? And as much as I would like to say that my common humanity is going to motivate me to do things for all sorts of, of people, I, there's just a, a sort of evolutionary built-in feature to me that I'm going to worry more about my local neighbors and and the right. stories that I and and if I if I have that mentality, then the stories that I tell do need to be to be local in order to spur wider and wider and wider senses of action. So there's part of me that resists this idea that there's a single narrative that we could tell, right? We're going to need lots and lots and lots of narratives. what you just said about like being more inclined to care about your local community i don't think that that's mutually exclusive with making decisions to like help a wider more global community you don't think climate change kind of makes it that it's going to have to be i don't think so why why do you say that like i Obviously, you are going to be more impacted by what happens in your own backyard. And so the urgency with which you try to address those problems will be greater than Mm -hmm. the urgency you feel to vote for something that's going to affect people who live like thousands and thousands of miles away. But I don't think that means that you wouldn't want to help those people. I don't think it necessarily means I wouldn't want to. I'm wondering if at the end of the day, would I? I mean, why wouldn't you if you had the opportunity to like? Well, and this is this is. The I mean, it's different. Like, I, you're not gonna like get where... on a plane and travel over there to like be on the ground with them. But from afar, if something presented can I, itself, can I interject? To you, is that where you said, Kendra, and I, and I definitely more align with you than Adam. Sorry, Adam. Um, cool. And, you know, Carrying him I'm out, used to it, fellow humans. Um, but now nah, I'm with talk- you, Adam. More successful than sin. Kendra, you made the comment about if we have the opportunity, 
I feel like that's a really big if. <laughs> yeah, it is. But I think that's the point that I'm trying to make is that, like, realistically, I will not be able to help <laughs> everybody on the globe. And I think that's, like, partially what Adam is saying. But I just think that's different than making a blanket statement about how we, like, don't care about, like, helping people <laughs> across the globe. <laughs> I... I I feel like those are two different things. And I think maybe it sounds to me like those are wrapped up with each other in your previous statement. And maybe, maybe that is true. I don't know. No, no, if you don't I, do something about it, can you say that you really do care, though? What? Like, say I, that again? My So my good friend Vlad is always great at calling me out on things. I'll say something like, oh, I really wish that I could draw, like I could paint. And he'll say, oh, great. When you, when are you um, taking lessons? And I'd say, well, I just, I, I, I don't have time for that. And he goes, oh, so you must not really want to because you'll make the time for the things that you want to do. And there's like, there's an aspirational part of us. And then there's a realistic part of us. There are things that we want to care about. And then there are things that we actually care about. Like to, if I'm being totally honest with you, I want to care about the seashore depletion in Sri Lanka. I really want to. I don't, if I'm being honest about it, because I care about things. The things that I care about are the things I do something about. And I want to care about a lot of things. I have aspirational desires to care about things. But if I'm being totally honest, I don't. And I care most about the things that I can see and touch and that affect my life here, here and now. And that's just, I think, a part of being a limited human who's been augmented by the uh, World Wide Web beyond my capacity that makes me what you're saying makes me think about a sermon from my church a couple weeks ago by our associate rector amanda so a little shout out to amanda but it was it was the uh, weekend of mlk weekend and her sermon was outstanding and she was talking about something that a, a friend of hers and, and the friend's child were having a conversation about if you could go back to the time of MLK and when he was marching and fighting for equal rights that, and this was a Caucasian family and how I think the mom had said something, or according to Amanda, the story was, is that the mom had said something along the lines of that. I like to believe that if I were alive, then I would have been doing the same thing. I would have marched in support, which I've thought that. And I, and you know, I remember sitting there in the pews thinking, yeah, you know, I, I've thought that, you know, I, I'm hopeful that I would have made that decision. And the daughter responded something along the lines of, we're not doing that right now. Mm -hmm. What makes you think we would have done it then? And it was such a huge wake up call mm -hmm. for so many of us, especially me. Afterwards, I went up and I gave her a big hug and just said, I love that perspective of you're right. You know, I'm not out marching now when I have the opportunity. So, why should I think I would have done it then? Yeah, the vast majority of American white Americans thought that MLK was moving too fast and that he needed to slow down, pump the brakes, and we'll get there when we get there. And, you know, that this this moderate hold up. He has a lot of very strong words to say about that in the uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. I think the difference between 
what Zach is saying and what Ian is saying, the examples that you're giving about, like, if you would care, you'd do something. We live in the United States, so we actually can do more right now to, like, affect change in the way of, like, civil rights issues that relate to American citizens. Like, we can participate in protests and do things here. But, like, what if you decided that you wanted to do something about Sri Lanka, like, what would you actually do that would, like, make a difference in the same way that you could make a difference here in the U.S.? And so my point is that I I get what y'all are saying about, like, if you'd care, you'd do something. But I think that only goes so far because there are, in fact, things that if you do care about, you sometimes just can't do anything about them. And I think... I think that's right. how I feel about this conversation and the mm. rem- like initial remarks that Adam made. And so this is just, I think, revealing my slight optimism above where Adam oh, I love it. is coming slight. from. Slight. <laughs> I, I, I feel like optimism. my optimism <laughs> is like between Adam and Rachel. Like Rachel... I, I feel know. like all of us are between Adam and Rachel. <laughs> oh, that's, that's fair. <laughs> no offense. It's a spectrum. Oh, yeah. because I, I feel I, like sometimes I, the things I say can come off as like overly optimistic. I I'm I feel like I'm not as optimistic as people sometimes pin me as. But I just <laughs> think that like this <laughs> this conversation about caring for things for people. I, I just don't think that it's true. And maybe my definition of what it means to care is just different, in which case this is like a hair-splitting language problem. But I think that you can care and sometimes be trapped and not be able to fix something is my I, point. I, I think the hair-splitting language problem is is a productive problem to deal with in this particular case because it I think it actually pushes on the ramifications of what it is that we hope for, how people would define success in response to, to the very dire consequences that we have described, particularly around climate change. And, and so I, I don't want I, I to back off from saying that this, this sort of hair-splitting distinctions, right, sort of laying out that there are a variety of positions that one can take in the optimism-pessimism scale here that are going to lead to people reacting to these these stories in very different ways. I I think knowing that, exploring that is really important in terms of formulating responses. I, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to sort of throw us throw us aside in terms of saying like yeah, hair splitting details. Let's just let it go. Like I I, mm-hmm. I think there's really something productive about doing that, and so frequently we don't slow down enough to to do that kind of work that that I think that's problematic as well. So despite the fact that your Pollyannish optimism is somewhat <laughs> offensive to my worries about the cesspool of sin. Doesn't I, I still die think shot fired. That's well, fine. Whatever. No, <laughs> I think it's not in the movie. Not in the movie. Okay. Um, I mean she's so, probably dead now. Yes, there we go, Zach. Just come down, man. <laughs> Keep coming down. No, <laughs> she doesn't die in the movie, but don't we all die? Exactly. Ashes to ashes. Speak for yourself. 
<laughs> haven't died with your, yet. With your billions and billions of dollars, Kendra, I'm yeah. sure you will find life extending <laughs> technologies. Um, <sighs> but but I do think I, I mean, I do think that's really I think it's really, really important. Right. And if for no other reason than it helps us hear the different ways that folks are going to come at this. If we don't hear. Right. If if everyone lives in the dark, dark recesses of depression that I am describing, <laughs> we'll end up in some some serious inaction. There's no doubt in my mind. We we need the Rachels of the world to pull us out of that hopelessness, which is a mm. real a real possibility out of the sort of like way that I've described what's going on. So much as I might be loath to say it, right? Like I, I need a little Kendra and Rachel and Ian. Not Zach, but but the rest of you to to sort of pull me, pull 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 that narrative that I'm trying to tell out of that that doldrum. Well, this so this so reminds me. Go ahead, go ahead. I was just gonna say, at the end, when we are not the end, like the eschaton, the end of the world, but like, <laughs> um, <laughs> so when we're dealing with the fallout from the inevitable. Um, sea level rise that will displace how many millions of tens of millions of people globally and then we say we said in the early part that they'll have to they'll have to relocate which is not i mean is not really an option for middle class people to easily relocate let alone lower uh, lower income people um, there will be complex cascading problems Till we get to a point farther down the line where it will not be as easy to define that this was a result of climate change. And so then we'll be more likely to blame something else on it and then less likely to actually help people. An example of this being the current border crisis and all the people coming up from South Central America to come into the United States for a better way of living. And, you know, we we fight about this left and right, about gang violence and about poverty and building walls and or beautiful fences. I don't know what we're calling them now. But this is our fault, this crisis at the border, in many ways because of bananas, because of back in the 1950s when the United Fruit Company discovered a way of growing bananas in Central America and getting it to New York fast enough that they could sell these ripe bananas to people in New York City all year round. And they ended up buying up a huge amount of Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and other countries in the area. And then in almost each and every one of these cases, they and the U.S. government overthrew local local governments. I mean, in Guatemala, especially, they were 10 years into a new democracy that they had founded themselves when the U.S. United Fruit got angry with the government for redistributing some of the lands. And President Eisenhower authorized the CIA to overthrow the president and installed a dictator who ruined local people's lives and benefited U.S. interests. And we did this over and over and over again in, in the 80s and under under Reagan, of course, in Guatemala and all of that. And then we've got NAFTA and uh, CAFTA and all of that that, that have just uh, ruined the lives of people, the, the, the common person down there, to the point where there are no, no economic possibilities, which then is a breeding ground for drugs, which many of the, the leaders of the cartels 
were trained in the School of Americas as uh, as in, uh, insurgents to overthrow the governments, and then they went off to form drug cartels. And so then the people are escaping to try to find the life that we took from them. And this goes back generations, and it has a lot to do with all kinds of things, mainly capitalism and bananas, and has nothing at all to do with the way that the narrative is being told today, which has everything to do with people who are lazy or they're being just evil people, bad people, beautiful, wonderful, good people with great intentions and saints and sinners and these things. We're not talking about the the larger establishments of, of US-based international corporations that completely screw over smaller countries in order to feed our empire so that none of us have to know about it too, so that we don't do something about it. But like, that's just an example of the kind of ripple effects that happen down the line. So somebody's going to get displaced from their traditional homeland at the shore, wherever it may be. They're going to have to go somewhere else. There's probably not going to be as much economic opportunities there. And if, say, they 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 come from a long line of, of uh, fishers, and then they have to go into the city and start a new life working in a factory or something, you end up with a lot of people and not as much work for them to do. You get disaffected, angry young men in the streets who are forming gangs. And you know, this is how we got ISIS and all kinds of other things. We're going to have just a lot of down the line issues. And we're going to be tempted to just look at the fruit instead of looking at the tree and the roots and all of that. And mm-hmm. I think whatever happens in the future, it will be important for us to be able to name it what it is. I mean, a couple of years ago, uh, I don't even remember the guy's name now. It was in the Democratic debates in the last cycle of this nonsense. He was the guy from Maryland or whatever. He said in a debate that climate change was one of the major contributing factors to the development of ISIS, and he got laughed at. And it's not wrong. All the the farming communities that that had to flee because of all of the, the, the years of droughts and the disenfranchisement yeah. and all of that. I mean, there's there's all these ripples, ripple effects that we need to we need to keep in mind as we learn how to care for each other better in the future. So first off, I want to point out that I think Zach has told a sadder story than I have. And <laughs> uh, again, joy in my heart. But <laughs> I <laughs> I should also I should also say that we are uh, we are currently reducing the rate of one of my antidepressants and so that might have something to do with it oh, oh yeah about it. Oh, uh i i i just want to mention that i think that we could probably do an interesting reading of kim stanley robinson's new york 2140 i don't know that which is this it's a it got like a 2018 hugo nomination it's his vision of what new york will be like when it's underwater Ooh. In 2140. What is it called? New York 2140? Uh, New York 2140 by Kim Stanley Robinson. Like Aquaman style? And less less fun. But I think it would be really, like, I, I think what would be really interesting, right, is that I have a feeling that the five of us would respond to it in really, really different ways. Hmm. And that those I'm responses reflect my something. Like, I think those responses, like, reflect something about the different ways in which we are all thinking about how these stories about climate change are or are not effective, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm imagining 
I'm going to just put this on either side of the spectrum here, right? That like Rachel would find this to be in some ways a plucky story about human survival and how we come together and care for each other. And I read it and went, oh my God, this will never happen because when this really does occur, we'll have broken into sort of tribal units and cannibalized each other, more like Cormac <laughs> McCarthy, right? And, but I but I think those... I those, hated slash loved the road. I know, right? We, we could probably talk about that too, right? But I think those reactions to stories <laughs> say some. I, I think that says something important. The fact that you're linking in in uh, the way O'Malley did. I think that's the politician you're referencing. Yes. Um, the the way that like cheap bananas relate to ISIS, right? In an overwhelming and terrifying way. And yet there's something about that story that's compelling, needs to be balanced out by the way that others might hear those stories. And I think that has been a really, for me at least, sort of thinking about these sort of different bits that we've done on climate change, that has been really interesting to, to try and tease out, to, to think not just about what stories we tell, but how they get heard. Right. Is, is I think, is, is, a, is certainly a question I'll take from sort of recording these sorts of things to, to think about more, just in terms of being really important. No, I think I think you're totally you're on it. I think we should make this a uh, a uh, patron a Patreon book club. That, <laughs> yeah, I mean hardcover. I'm looking it's at our library, three ninety nine a hardcover on Amazon, twelve bucks on Kindle. Woo! Free at your local library. There you go. Yeah, it's great, great book. So I got nothing fun to end it on. The world is still spinning, and and we are. Uh, the uh, the current coastline is still there as of this recording. <laughs> God, we need Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> so that could be the ending right there. <laughs> this has been episode 29 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. Thanks to everyone who's left us a review on Apple and shared the pod with your friends and family or strangers in the grocery store. You are the real heroes. Thanks also to our donors on Patreon. You too can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash down the wormhole podcast. I've been trying to get our Patreon only discord channel up and running. So if you are already a patron and you're not a part of that, then check your inbox for instructions. Next week, we are starting a new miniseries we're calling Down the Wormhole Goes to the Movies. We're each going to take a week to lead a conversation on one of our favorite movies that have elements of science and or religion. We are posting the schedule on Facebook and Twitter so you can make sure you've seen the movie before the episode drops. Ian is going to get us started with the 1997 movie Contact. So get ready to talk about aliens, agnostics, and why the creator of the universe didn't leave their fingerprints somewhere neutral, like in the digits of pi or under a rock or something. But until next week, great to great to see you, and don't forget the cesspool, son. <laughs> <laughs>